Romans chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 9. We'll only look at a couple verses tonight. What a surprise that is. Um, I got slowed down a little bit in the study. Uh, you know, Paul has been speaking to us about wonderful pearls of doctrinal truth, and now in chapter 12, he's saying, now this is what you ought to do about it. And here's what he says we ought to do about love uh, in chapter 12, verse 9. We have to make sure that we're really loving in a biblical way. And so Paul says there, let love be without hypocrisy. That's what he says. So there's a condition on the kind of love that is pleasing to God. It has to be love that is without hypocrisy. Do you know, you do know, in the original language, which is Greek, there are a number of different words for our one word, love. Would you like to guess which word in the Greek represents the word love here? I'll bet you know it. Yeah, that's it, agape love. We're familiar with it. It's not unusual. Uh, in fact, it's been utilized already by Paul many times up until now in, in Romans. However, it's always been used up until now with regard to God's love for us. It is rarely used with our love for one another, but here it is. And I wonder, what is God up to? Why did, under inspiration, why did he have the Apostle Paul choose that word? I think it's because God, who loves us, wants us to manifest the same kind of love with which he loves us to one another. That ought to be easy, right? No, it's a tall order, but that's exactly what we're called to do. You've been recipients of agape love, therefore be transmitters of it. That's essentially what it says here. Manifest a God-like love to one another and do it like God does. His love, is this not true? God's love for us persists in spite of us. Do you agree with that? It's true. His love persists in spite of changes in circumstances, in spite of our moods and ups and downs. His love persists in spite of the fact that we sometimes even sin. And the exhortation here is to manifest that same kind of love to those around us, the kind of love that sort of makes a decision not to stop loving even the one who has become now unlovable. Agape love. It's in any way kind of love. It's as if God looks to us and we petition him almost to stop loving us. We say, oh God, I, I, you can't possibly love me. Do you know what I'm thinking? Do you know what I'm about? Do you know what I've just done? And I hope you, I hope I at those moments hear God say, yes, I know everything about you, but I love you anyway, anyway. I love the word anyway. I've shared this story with you, but I'll, I'll do it again in case you weren't listening uh, the first time. I was a pastor of a church in Chicago many years ago before you were born. No, that's, that, that's not true, but a long time ago. But it was an unusual congregation. It was called a Messianic congregation, meaning it was made up of Jews and Gentiles who worshipped Jesus the Messiah in Hebraic fashion. I was the pastor. And uh, I came in. Uh, on a uh, Sunday, and some of the members of the congregation told me, we have a problem explaining to visitors what we are all about. 
I mean, we couldn't say we're a Southern Baptist church, we're a Methodist church. It was kind of sort of weird, a messianic congregation. What does that mean? So I was trying to think of a way to make it simple for our folks to explain briefly to new people what we're all about. And I said, why don't you just tell them we are in any way church, meaning we are really flawed, we have limitations, we're quite weak. In fact, we have transgressed. We've sinned against a holy God. But we have come to know that he loves us anyway. Tell them we are in any way church. And I thought to publicize this, uh, I would ask one of the artistically inclined members of the church to make a kind of a sign that I could post on the pulpit that simply said, anyway. And that way, when people came in, new people, they could ask, what is anyway all about? And our members could say, we're sinful, we're needy, we're flawed, but God loves us anyway. Have you discovered his love expressed through his son? That was the idea. So this guy, this artist said, great, uh, I'll do it. I'll have it for you next Sunday. Well, he did. He was faithful. He got there early before the service began, and I came in from the back. I saw that there was a new sign hanging on the pulpit, but from the back, because this artist was very creative, you know, curl cues and stuff like that, and wouldn't want to do just block letters. Anyone could do that. He had to be creative and stuff, so he was so creative that from the back, the anyway sign looked like Amway. <laughs> so we became an Amway church. It wasn't exactly, you know, what I sort of had in mind. I wanted folks, myself included, uh, to find uh, in the experience of God's anyway love a motivation to manifest the same to others. Being recipients of his anyway love, you see, that's the motivation behind us showing that same kind of anyway agape love to others. As God has chosen us anyway, so too we are to choose. It's a decision. Feelings are sort of involved, but really, biblical love is a decision. As God has chosen to affix his unconditional love upon us, so too I think we're exhorted to do the same, to choose to love others, even unlovable others. So that's a tall order. Uh, agape love is not something we can manifest in our own strength. It's love which is motivated by and energized by God himself. Oh God, we must say, for you will never leave uh, me go. You'll never give up on me. You will persist in loving me when I don't even want to spend time with you. Oh, God, you love me anyway. Being a recipient of that kind of love, would you please energize me, strengthen me so as to manifest that same kind of love to others? Can you see this kind of love is a true mark of regeneration? It's not possible for an unregenerated person to manifest it because that person is not energized by God who loves us anyway, taking up his abode in their lives. So this is what it seems to me Paul is speaking about. Let this agape love, let it be manifested without hypocrisy. Do you know the Bible never commands us to like each other? Isn't that good of God? <laughs> Not a one of us would be able to comply. But we are commanded to love one another. Hey, let's really make that sink in. So could you kind of, um, in a moment, get up 
and go around to the person you dislike the most. It'll be, it'll be good. Say to that person, I really can't stand you, but I love you. Okay, would you do? No. But I mean, there really is a difference. There really is a difference. You know what liking someone is based on? It's based on having things in common. The same senses of humor, maybe ethnic background, personality. Who tastes in clothes or recreation? That's how you like one another. But God is saying in spite of what you may not have in common, I want you to manifest the kind of love with which I have loved you. What do we have in common? I'm unapproachably holy apart from my grace, and you have an inclination to sin in thought, word, and deed. You have a beginning and an end. I do not. You are not self-sustained, self-sufficient. You are needy. I lack for nothing. Talk about two entities having nothing in common. You, the human, me, the divine. We are eons apart. And yet, I have chosen to identify with you. I've chosen to love you anyway. And I want you to go and love one another likewise. With Without hypocrisy, it says. And that's simply a call to consistency. It, it means say what you mean. And it also means mean what you say. So to say a nice thing to somebody and then to run down that same somebody behind his or her back is to demonstrate hypocritical love. And Paul is saying don't do that. And he uses this word uh, hypocrisy, uh, which in the Greek was used of actors in Greek theater. They were called hypocrites. Isn't that interesting? Because they would stand behind a mask. They would literally hold a mask, cover their face, and it would uh, reflect to the audience the kind of emotion they wanted to communicate. So if it was sadness, uh, um, you know, there would be a mask with a frown. If, if there was elation, they'd hold up a mask with a smile. And Paul is essentially saying here, when you love, you must not hide behind some kind of hypocritical mask. It must be real. It must be consistent, and it must be out of the integrity of your heart. Okay, so all of that being said... I fear I'm, I may have led you uh, astray in this regard. Uh, in emphasizing unconditional, anyway, agape love, uh, it occurred to me that you and I um, may think love has no, no boundaries, um, no limitations, uh, and that discernment is not necessary. You just, you just go about loving. But I think we have to be, be careful because we might come to the wrong conclusion about what real biblical love is, and in the course of maybe missing it, we may find ourselves cooperating with what's wrong and even what's evil. Hence, the very next phrase which we see in the verse, Paul says, abhor what is evil and instead cling to what is good. I think he's anticipating we may, under the banner of love, tolerate all manner of wrongdoing on the part of those near us. We may call it love when, in fact, it's not. Paul says you must not use so-called love as an excuse to align yourself with that which is evil and wrong. You have to abhor it, and you have to instead cling to what is good. 
So the kind of love, the biblical love that God has shown to us and which we are to demonstrate to others distinguishes between what is evil and what is good. So uh, let me give some illustrations of what I mean. Fictitious, but they could be real. Um, a son comes home and says to his uh, mom, single parent, you know uh, I have a girlfriend, I, and we have a big house since Dad passed away, and I would like to invite her to come and live with me here in the house. It will save us money, and the two of us, you know, though not married, we sort of love each other, and we don't want to rush into anything, but we want to live together here. The single mom feels a check in her spirit. It just doesn't sit right. Uh, she can't point to a chapter and verse, but she's a believer, and she knows this is probably not the way to do things. But under the guise of love, she says, okay. She doesn't want to offend her son and his girlfriend. She doesn't want to drive a wedge. She doesn't want to insult them, so she says, okay, move in. Folks, that is not the kind of love we're speaking about here in verse 9. Let me give you another illustration. An adult child has a, uh, an alcohol or a drug problem, but refuses to deal with it. It's a problem he, she cannot master alone. And so his parents have extended the very gracious offer repeatedly to finance his treatment, to get him help, get her help somewhere. Repeatedly, the son, let's say it was a son, has refused uh, all such overtures to get help. But what the son has not given up is constant, rather manipulative appeals to his parents, advanced in years, for financial upkeep. And they are saying, no, because you're squandering it. How could you say you're my parents? How could you say you love me? How could you say you care for me if you don't sustain me? Do you want me to be homeless? Do you want me to have to steal in order to... And so the parents say, wait a second. The Bible does say we are to love. God loves me. Therefore, under the guise of love... They continue to support this child's behavior without any attempts at interrupting the pattern. Is that the kind of love Paul is speaking about in verse 9? No, it's not. I'll tell you why in just a second. These are first illustrations I'd like to share with you. Here's another one. A pastor has um, an unbiblical physical relationship with Someone, not his wife. A woman, not his wife. He's found out. He expresses sorrow. He stands before his congregation. He says, I've made a serious mistake, is what he called it. Uh, it is suggested that he take a break. That he put himself in the company of godly men who could hold him accountable, who could help him in the direction of restoration. They asked him to step down from the pulpit for an indefinite period of time. 
It looks like he's cooperative, but after one month, he calls for a meeting of the congregation, and he said, it has occurred to me that I've done wrong twice. First, the relationship with that lady was wrong, but now I've done wrong because God called me to be a pastor, and I have allowed myself to be set apart from it. For an indefinite period of time, I realized that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, and therefore I'm telling to you I feel it's time for me to reemerge as your pastor, and I'll be delivering the message on Sunday. The people are quite concerned because they wanted him to take sufficient time so as to see the precursors to this affair. It just doesn't happen. It could happen to anyone, but there are certain factors that increase the probability. The congregation felt that the pastor, uh, though he knew theology, didn't have much insight into his own motivations, his own hurts, his own wounds, his own sin, and so therefore they felt he would benefit from some accountability, some professional help, so as to develop insight, so as to affair-proof his marriage. He says, no, I talked to people, you know, I had a couple sessions and stuff like that. I'm ready to get back to business. The congregation doesn't feel good. They're a little hesitant about it, but then they say, who are we to stand in the way of a man called by God? I mean, God has called him to be pastor, and I mean, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. It could, be, it could be any of us, and he really is quite a good preacher. He has a good sense of humor and gives good illustrations, and even though this isn't the ideal situation, if we love him, how could we say no? And therefore, the congregation allows him prematurely to re-enter the pastor without any uh, growth, maturity, insight development so as to increase the probability of not doing this again. Is that the kind of agape love the Bible is speaking about? I don't think so. How about this one? Uh, a young man comes home, tells his parents and the church he regularly attended he is gay. He's had same-gender attraction for years, and he has found a partner, a same-gender partner. They're living together, they're in love, and they're soon to marry. Parents are not happy about this. The church is not. But he talks to them about how they are, as a couple, monogamous and in love. They pray together. They've never been happier. Who are we hurting? That's, that's what they say. It seems to make sense. And it's, he's a wonderful, likable person. The congregation sort of knows at this point a little too far back in their minds what Scripture has to say about this sort of thing. But they're leading now with their hearts and not their heads. And they say, how could we run these two people off? They're ones for whom Jesus died. Didn't he associate with marginalized people? We must as well. And so the church uh, uh, moves into a kind of a celebratory mode. We're happy for you. We're glad you have found one another. So parents support it and church supports it. I ask you, is that a manifestation of biblical love.
So you see how we can get in trouble if we don't sort of come to grips with what is God really asking us to do? Well, it's pretty concise. Biblical love abhors what is evil and clings to what is good. And biblical love knows it can never be good for a person to deviate from God's will. You and I have tried it and have reaped our just rewards. If you really love someone, you want what's best. And you and I know doing things the Father's way, God's way, is best. It's not an act of love to cooperate with somebody's misbehavior, no matter how persuasive they may be, no matter what the culture says, that's not an act of love to compromise so as to keep the peace. Agape love is not self-love. It's high regard for the other, even if the other separates and divorces himself or herself from the one who spoke truth to them. By the way, that's what biblical love is. True love speaks the truth in love. Biblical love encourages responsibility. That's a good definition of love. Biblical love is when you and I do that which will encourage responsible choices on the part of the other. So to support someone's habitual substance abuse, that person refusing help, it is not an act of love. You see, the greatest act of love is to encourage responsible choices. A responsible choice would be to say, Mom, Dad, I need help, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get it. That's biblical love to help out in, in that cases. I was, uh, I was uh, the pastor of Estruma Baptist Church. In fact, one of our finest deacons, is with us tonight. This is Austin Kendrick from Baton Rouge, and uh, uh, he fired me. You fired me, didn't you, Austin? No, 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 it wasn't. We were close friends. And, um, but I remember at a stream of one Sunday, we used to get what we called foyer time, and I, I was staying out in the foyer. You, know, you meet people, you greet people, and a member said to me, uh, he said, Brother Stewart, here's, uh, there's a man. You need to speak to this man. He's in need, financial need. So someone I'd not seen before, and he was dressed uh, like he had fallen on hard times. And he said to me, you're the pastor. I said, yes, I am. How could I be of help to you? And he said, well, all I'm asking for, and it was quite an elaborate story. It was, uh, it was almost persuasive, except even though I was in Baton Rouge, I'm from New York. And so I was thinking, I just don't, I don't think this is really working. You see what I mean? So I said, I want to tell you something. Uh, you and I don't know each other well, but the one thing we could agree upon is that you've had money problems. Can we not agree on that? Absolutely. Do you think there's any evidence maybe of mismanagement of money in your life? Absolutely. I'm in the situation I'm in. Just secondly, he told me about a drug issue. Uh, I, I said... Um, I'll bet you something else we could agree upon is that uh, you have impulse control, meaning you have a need for immediate gratification. He said, what does that mean? I said, it means you can't wait. You want what you want when you want it. He said, that's true. I said, so here's the deal. We both agree you can't manage your finances well, and you have an impulse control problem. Because I'm really concerned about you, I'm not going to give you a penny today. 
and you will not speak to any member in this church today. You're welcome to worship to us, but if you can't abide by the rules, I'll have you escorted out. But I want you instead to worship with us and come back tomorrow, and I'll match you up with one of our men who understands finances, and that man will help you just like Brother uh, Jim Hastings right there does in Helping Hands Ministry. And, and that man will help you to learn to manage your finances. He became irate and started to yell at me right in the foyer. By the way, thanks for your help, Austin. I really am really grateful. But anyway, he began to yell at me in the, in the foyer. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You call yourself a Christian. And, 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 and you're supposed to be loving. You see? See, he He thought... Love, biblical love, means you give people what they want. No, 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 no. Biblical love means you give people what they need because that encourage, encourages responsible uh, uh, choices. So, so those are illustrations, it seems to me, of what we're not, we're not talking uh, about. Biblical love wants what's best for the other person and so biblical love is when we do that which encourages more responsible choices. It's not loving to do for another what that other can and should do for himself. Let me uh, illustrate. I have three boys. They're grown now, but at one time they were not. They were just kids. And I came home one night. They were in the living room uh, watching TV, sprawled across the couches watching TV. Hello, boys. Hey, Dad. There's a sock on the floor in the living room. And uh, we had told them, we're going to allow you to, you know, organize your room according to your personality. They each had a room. You'd organize it, you know, some are a little neater than others and so on. That's okay. But we will not permit spillover of your personal items into public areas like the living room because we live here too. Your, your mother and I live here as well. So I said, uh, I said, guys, whose sock is that? There was no answer. They didn't. They don't know who it is. So I said, look, it, I don't care who, whose it, it is. I, I just want you, who, I want you to pick it up before I get back in here. So I came back about 15 minutes later. The boys are still there watching TV, uh, but the sock is still on the floor. So I... Uh, I did not get angry, not at all. I just, I raised my voice a little so they could hear. That is not anger. I just wanted them to hear. So I went through the same thing. I gave them, a, you know, I went to sermon mode. You know, this is a house, and, you know, a lot of people don't even have houses. You have your own rooms. And when I was your age, you know, I went into that stuff. And uh, so I'm going to give you another chance. Whoever the sock is owned by, pick it up, and I'll be back. I come back uh, 15 minutes later. The sock is still there but now the boys are gone. <laughs> so you know what I did? I picked up the sock. It was easier. But that's a mistake. So here's what happens when you go around picking up people's socks, when they, in fact, can and should pick up their own sock. A couple things happen. One, you get angry because you got your own socks to pick up. That's one thing. The second thing you portray an unrealistic view of life. You communicate to your kids who you say you love that there's always going to be someone out there who's a sock picker-upper for you. 
You, don't, you know what you're doing? You're teaching, if you pick up their socks, things they can and should do, you're teaching them irresponsibility without consequence. Why are you doing it? Well, because you, I love the kids. You know, I don't want to cause uh, upheaval stuff. No, no, no. You don't love the kids. Don't you see? You're loving peace and tranquility. <laughs> you're loving status quo at home more than you're loving the kids. You're not disciplining them. You're not helping them towards more responsible choices, you see? So that's not the kind of love we're, we're speaking about. I had uh, uh, my son, uh, Ben. He's a, he's a police officer now, and I think he went into this violent profession because of the way we abused him uh, when he was young. So this is a case in point. He was a young kid. He's our youngest child, and he was watching something on TV. They were advertising a toy, and he really liked it. And we were giving him allowance then, the kids, you know. And he had $2, which was burning a hole in his pocket. And he wanted me to drive him to, I think it was Walmart or something like that, uh, so, so as to get this. And I gave him counsel. I said, Ben, listen to me. What it is in real life is different than what it looks like on TV. Uh, on TV, they're making it look really, really special. But that, that, that's not the way it looks in real life. I suggest, I recommend that you hold on to your money and make a wiser purchase, to which he said, well, it's my money. Wasn't he a respectful little booger? <clears throat> I said, okay. Put him in the car. We went to Walmart. I went in the store with him. He found it. He plunked down his $2. It was in a little package. We get in the car. He's in the back seat. He opens it, he assembles it. Before we got out of the parking lot, it falls apart. He starts crying. He's a little kid. He starts crying. I get mad at the store. I said, good night. I'm, gonna, I'm going in there. I'm getting the $2 back. I'm going to get more. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise such a storm in there, they will pay me a whole lot to get out of the store. I'm going to say, how dare you take advantage of little kids and you know, that's what I'm going to do. And then I suddenly realized, that's not because I love my child. I love me. I want to give someone a piece of my mind. I want to make the world a better place, whatever. And then it suddenly dawned on me, oh, no, if I really love him, let him cry. Don't be so quick to dry his tears. Because if I ran interference for him and got his money back, I would have taught him this. You never have to listen to the counsel of your dad or older people because you think you're as smart as they are. I will have told him there's no consequence for you making your own choices because daddy will run interference. And I came close to doing that because who wants to see their child cry, don't you see? So I would have done that for me, not for him. Instead, thank God, I came to my senses and uh, I hope over the years he's learned you don't get this white hair <laughs> for nothing. We learned something through the course of making our own mistakes in life, and our children and grandchildren ought to respect that and seek our counsel. So you see, biblical love is not this flower child, you know, be nice to everyone, give everyone what they want. No, biblical love has a measure of discernment to it. It never endorses or aligns itself with 
attitudes or behavior that's wrong or that's evil. It embraces instead what's good in God's sight. His will is good, acceptable, and perfect. Real love is not just being nice to people. It's moving a person away from their evil, sinful inclinations and towards God's goodness. So to love someone is not simply to cater to that person's demands. It's to act toward that person in ways that help that person to experience more of God's goodness. Now, you know what this verse, the the phrase that says abhor evil and cling to what is good, you know what it implies? It means God has absolute standards of what's evil and what's good. Did you know that? We can't apply this if God's moral standards fluctuate. If you can't know what evil is and what good is, then we can't apply the verse. But we can know because in spite of the fact that the culture is changing at a rapid clip, God remains the same yesterday, today, and forever before. What he said was wrong in Genesis, he still declares to be wrong in Revelation. Everything is changing, but not the moral character of all mighty God. Now, this is a problem for you and I who want to fit in, because if we lovingly declare, if we speak God's word in truth and love to this society, we could be labeled narrow and intolerant and unloving. You see what I mean? But those are people who don't understand biblical love. Biblical love is to advance the kind of lifestyle, the giver of life, the maker declares to be the right way to go. We are not loving someone when we condone a same-gender relationship, when we condone cohabitation, when we condone serial marriages and divorces, when we condone serial partners. I know what society says. It's two consenting adults who are there, you know, all this kind of kind of stuff. But I'm telling you, if you're really loving someone, you're seeking their highest good. And their highest good is God's good, acceptable, and perfect will. Folks, we must abhor Not the evildoer, absolutely not. But we must abhor evil and cling to what is good at first in our own lives. And then we must declare the difference between what's right and wrong, even to this increasingly anti-God society. That's the way it is. Now, folks, if God's standards of what's right and wrong apply across the board, if we're to show love to everybody, then most certainly we are to show it to one another. And so it says in verse 10, with which we'll close. Be devoted to one another. Paul is exhorting one believer to be devoted to another. Do this in brotherly love. Philadelphia is the word. Brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. In Greek society, even today, brotherly love is normally taken to be a reference to the love shown between family members. Now, God has taken it and said, I want you to show the same love ordinarily reserved for blood relatives. I want you to use it to show the same love to those who, like you, have been washed clean by my blood. And so God uses this very paradigm. He says, I'm your father, hence you pray, our father, which makes you my sons and daughters, which makes you one another brothers and sisters. I'm not entirely um, consumed by that. But since I've been studying this, I'm asking, oh, God, get that in me, would you please? These are not church members. 
with whom I can come and go, <laughs> uh, uh, disrespect, divorce myself from. <gasps> this is family. You didn't save us from something into nothing. You saved us from the world into your family of which you are the head. We have got to regard each other with the same persistent love we would show to family members. And you and I know we all have blood family members who are cantankerous, who are difficult to get along with, who are obnoxious, who are unlovable, and all the rest. And yet, we're prone, much more prone, to persist in loving them, in being kind to them, and in showing preference to them. It means to show deference. It kind of means you're, you're about ready to walk through a door, the two of you, and you take the lead. You say, no, you first, please. And the other says, no, no, you first, please. That's kind of the image here. Instead of asserting yourself as being better than another brother or sister, let them go first. That's essentially what it's saying. It's phenomenal. Faith in Christ in the first century brought together very diverse people. It brought together Jews and Gentiles who had nothing to do with one another. It brought together slaves and free who had nothing to do with one another, except in the oppressive system of slavery. It brought together males and females in an entirely different way as brothers and sisters. How could such a diverse group ever get along? Well, they can't without God's spirit of love indwelling them and without God's word regularly reminding us, just as we're being, I hope, reminded in this passage of the necessity of being devoted to one another in brotherly love. That's what it says. And do you know that this kind of love will facilitate the Great Commission? If we love another, one another, people will not get saved. I don't mean that. People only get saved by hearing and accepting the gospel. But if we don't love one another, people will have less interest in being saved. You see? Because they'll see us to be just like every other organization, not really tied to one another, not bound together, quite fickle. And so the Bible actually says that the unsaved world will recognize us by the way we treat one another. I didn't make this up. John 13, verses 34, 35, a new commandment I give to you. The Lord is, himself is speaking. Here it is, that you love one another. How? Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another, not by our buildings, not by our programs, not by our theology, not by our preaching. By this, all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And I've gotten so convicted, I just think we've become sufficiently unattractive to the outside world that they're not very interested in having the Savior we claim to have because it appears to them the Savior we have hasn't made much of a difference. We're just as backbiting, just as cynical, just as bitter, just as unloving. The other day, someone I know was bad-mouthing 
someone here. And you know what I did? I just listened. I did not defend a brother in the faith. I, didn't, I made no defense. I just listened and went on my way. <gasps> but I dare you to say something mean or cruel about my mother or my sisters or my sons. I dare you. <gasps> but God said, that is the same kind of devotion we are to show to one another. We are to speak well of one another. We are to avoid backbiting gossip here or on the outside especially. I need to tell you something. Pastor, I apologize. I'm going, but this will just take another minute or maybe three. But um, So um, I, I introduce you to my friend Austin here who is just one of the best uh, members at Estrum and one of the best friends a pastor could ever have. Austin is here because his wonderful wife, her name is Peggy, was involved in an automobile accident in October. She was hit by a car as a pedestrian, knocked about 10 feet. Nothing was broken. She was conscious for a while and then went unconscious and was in a coma for quite a while. She hasn't spoken since October. She's unable to eat. It's brain damage. And Austin and family are so grateful that they've been accepted to tear here in our great city, TIRR, Texas Institute of Rehabilitation and Research, and they're so very pleased with the care and the treatment and, and all the rest. Well, your heart goes out, doesn't it, to this couple, to Peggy, and especially to Austin. And I thought, oh my goodness, he's going to be here for a while. Every day he's there at his wife's bedside, and I thought, he's in a, a place which is not his own. Oh, I wish we could extend ourselves to him in some way. Then I got a call on Monday from that couple, Gene and Pat Sims. Gene is the chairman of our deacons here, Austin. And uh, Gene told me he met friends of mine, uh, Gene and Pat did, Austin, Peggy, Kendrick, as they on Monday went as part of the marvelous pastoral care team under our, our, our beloved brother Rex. They went to visit hospitals, one of which was Tear. And there they went in before Austin was there to pray with Peggy and then to have a good lengthy conversation and prayer time with him. Uh, I wept um, when I got off the phone, Gene and Pat. I didn't want to, you to know me to be weak. So, but I wept after because I thought, oh my goodness, behold how they love each other. <gasps> Do you know not everyone gets a visit in a hospital? Isn't it sad? I know for a fact our wonderful people who visit many times have prayed over the person next to our member because that person is not being visited by anyone. I know medical staff have often said, that's some church you belong to. You're not forgotten here, are you? They'll know we are Christians, not by our theology and you know, not by our campaigns and protests and boycotts and all the rest. I suppose there's a place for all this, but the number one thing God, Jesus himself says, by this, by your love for one another, all men will know you are my disciples. Anyway, I was so grateful to have access to Austin, who I hadn't seen in a few years, and I was so grateful uh, for uh, family members like Gene and Pat, and Austin told me Byron Walton, I don't know if he's here tonight, went to visit yesterday, 
Uh, it's just like Estruma. Estruma has that kind of loving heart as well. If you don't think people don't take notice about those things, they didn't get in arguments about spiritual gifts, modes of baptism, and women's roles. I know these are important things. But the Lord Jesus says, love each other, for by this, all men, unsaved men, women, will know you are my disciples. We thank God for uh, the Sims and Waltons and so many others here who do manifold ministries showing this kind of love which the world knows not of. It's that kind of thing that might salt the oats and cause them to have more of an appetite for the Savior who has loved us with an anyway kind of love. Austin, we're glad you're here. We pray for you and for Peggy, and it's just a privilege to have you with us. Lord Jesus, thank you for the family you've given us. We're so grateful to be a part of it. We didn't know what was coming when we asked you to forgive our sin, be our Savior, and take us into your family. We didn't know what it was like. It's a grand family with flaws, with mistakes, with hurts and offenses. Of course, every family has those things. But blessed be the tie that binds. Oh, God in heaven, the blood that binds us together as believers is much more precious and significant than the blood which binds us together as families. It is the blood of the Lord Jesus, your blood himself. Oh, God, help us to show respect for it by loving one another in such an anyway kind of way that people around us take note, are jealous, and want to find out how to gain entrance into the family. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.